coming up on this episode of Inside the Epicenter. I think this past event with the withdrawal and everything, you know, Americans were tired. Let's be honest. Americans were tired of this war. 20 years, our longest war. 20 years after the events of 9-11. Where are we? And where is the epicenter going? Hello, and welcome to Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg, a podcast of the Joshua Fund, a ministry dedicated to blessing Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. I'm Carl Muller, Executive Director of the Joshua Fund, and I'm joined today by our founder, Joel Rosenberg. Joel, that's the question on so many people's minds these days. 20 years after 9-11, where are we and where are we headed in the epicenter? Welcome. Now, it's great to be with you, Carl. And, and we're, as we record this, it's a very painful moment. Um, look, the last 20 years have been very, very painful. Uh, 20 years ago, very few Americans, very few uh, North Americans or, or, or Christians around the world spent much time thinking about the Middle East unless you lived and worked there and ministered there. Very few people understood the nature of Islam or the subsets within Islam known as radical Islamism or what has emerged as apocalyptic Islamism. I know we'll talk about some of those those real threats, those challenges, um, but we were blindsided by 9-11. We were blindsided by uh, Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. Those are not terms most Americans had heard of, even though Osama bin Laden had already declared war on us several years earlier. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he had sent Al-Qaeda forces to blow up U.S. embassies in Africa and attack a a U.S. Navy warship uh, known as the USS Cole uh, near Yemen, at a port in Yemen. Al-Qaeda under bin Laden's leadership had been attacking Americans, killing Americans, among others. But still, it, it, a lot of that seemed not something that had penetrated most Americans' consciousness. And so 9-11 blindsided us. Yeah. And I think if you look at what's happened over the last 20 years, we have seen wars and insurrections and revolutions and genocide. Mm. There was a season in the last 20 years where – Al-Qaeda forces that had morphed into something new and even more dangerous known as the Islamic State or mm-hmm. ISIS was literally waging genocide against Christians to exterminate Christians in Syria and Iraq. So it's yeah. been a, a, a ghastly 20 years, and yet there have been signs of hope. But as we record this, there are also new signs of real pain because of the catastrophe unfolding in Afghanistan. Yeah. Well, that's obviously the lead in all of our minds is what is happening in Afghanistan right now on the ironic anniversary 20 years of the 9-11 attacks. And and the very same people in some ways who were behind those attacks are are back, at least ideologically, the same people leading uh, Afghanistan. And, and Joel, you, you have so much to say on this. I know you've written a new book, which in future podcast episodes uh, we're going to get into called Enemies and Allies. You know, there it is. Excellent. <laughs> in this moment, 
I think so many Americans are really struggling. I think if this uh, situation hadn't unfolded the way it did, many Americans might have just sort of filed away the 20th anniversary you know, in the background of, of many, many other pressing problems. Mm-hmm. But we're sitting right now on the cusp of a whole new conflagration in Afghanistan or or at least tragedy unfolding in front of us. Right. You know, help me understand. You've been there. Help me understand what life is like in Afghanistan, possibly right now for Christians, those that have come to faith in the last 20 years, and maybe some of the other allies of the U.S. Yeah. Happy to do it. Uh, happy, I say, just because I think it's important. That's the whole point of this podcast is to help people understand what is going on in the Middle East, in North Africa, in Central Asia, in the regions uh, that are dominated by Islam. And of course, Israel being an island in the middle of all that. And of course, where I live in Jerusalem and, and so much of the Bible was written in or about uh, the people of the Middle East, um, not entirely, because uh, Europe, Turkey, and uh, and Europe and stuff uh, get included. Um, but yeah, these are big issues. But I will say that, as you just alluded to, uh, for the last 18 months or so, because of the COVID pandemic, very few people have, in the United States have been thinking, even in the church, about what's going on in the Middle East. Uh, and I think uh, that's understandable, right? We've had not only the worst health crisis uh, uh, pandemic um, since, you know, in a in hundred years since the Spanish flu killed 50 million people, right? So right. And then you've had all the economic uh, shutdowns and all the economic trauma because of the, the reaction, the understandable reaction to COVID. And then you've had church shutdowns and the controversy over that, and you've had race riots, and you've had a, a very bitter political election. And so, you know, the, the issues of the Middle East and Israel and the Muslim world just seem like, yeah, whatever. Like, we just can't, we don't have the bandwidth to deal with that. Mm. But, you know, the first sentences of the new book, Enemies and Allies, is it's long been said in Las Vegas that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Right. Okay. But nobody says that about the Middle East. Mm. Because no matter what instinct you have to look away and focus on your own issues and your own economies, your own countries, your own church issues, your own personal family, the Middle East forces you to come back. The dynamic in the Middle East does not allow you for long to look away because it just, not that the last Godfather was the best, but there was that line when Michael Corleone says, every time I try to get away, they pull me back in. (laughs) That's right. And that's the Middle East. And so- Enough that's, already. That's why we call it the epicenter, right? I mean, yeah. that's it is the epicenter of human history, and it is. And and that term um, in the book I wrote uh, in 2006, uh, epicenter. Why do I call it that? Because it's the center. It's the it's the focus. It's the the Middle East is the epicenter of a, the momentous events that are shaking our world and mm. shaping our future. And yes. here we are again. So. Yes, I have been to Afghanistan. I have been to Kabul and some of the areas outside. I've met with tribal leaders. I've met with Christian leaders. The short version to your specific question is this. The Christian leaders that I'm talking to right now, either directly or those that oversee the national believers and national pastors and Christian leaders in Afghanistan or the missionaries that are there, other Christian aid workers – they are very worried. Many are trying to get their people out. But of course, if you're a national, you have very little chance of leaving. 
It's very hard right now. I mean, as we're taping this, there's concern that Americans and our allies, they're not going to get out themselves. Uh, And we pray that they will. And maybe by the time people hear this, hopefully there's been good success stories. But right now, as you and I are recording this, it's a real open question. Right. But there are many Afghan Christians that I'm starting to hear from that they believe they're going to die. But they also believe they need to stay. Mm hmm. And they believe that in the worst moments in their country's history, they have come to faith, they have grown in their faith, they've been rooted and established in their faith in Jesus Christ. They know where they're going when they die. Mm. But they also know that many of their neighbors, friends, and colleagues have no idea what's going to happen to them. And if they don't know Jesus Christ in a personal way, they've repented, they've become born again. As Jesus said, the only way you're going to enter the kingdom of God is if you are born again. Mm -hmm. If something spiritual, miraculous has to happen in you to change you from your lost nature to being adopted and brought into God's family and his kingdom. And if that has not happened, Mm -hmm. then even if you don't know, you're still going to hell. And, Mm -hmm. And so for those who are followers of Jesus Christ and are Afghani, they know this and they know they were lost and now they're found. Yeah. They were blind, but now they see they can, you know, I don't know if they literally sing uh, the uh, Afghani language versions of amazing grace, but spiritually they can. And yeah. the point is they believe they need to be a witness to their people, including the Taliban. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, love your enemy. How is this enemy going to even hear or see people who love Jesus and have any chance yeah. of coming to faith unless they are witnesses to them? And on that, I would just say that is tremendous courage. I, I, that's mm-hmm. the courage of Stephen when Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, but is in the moment a, a murderous religious terrorist, is assisting the murder, the martyrdom of Stephen as Stephen preaches the gospel and it communicates clearly and and demonstrates uh, his love for Jesus, even praying that his uh, tormentors, you know, Lord, forgive them. And they don't know what they're doing, echoing the words of Jesus on the cross. And what happened? Saul did not come to faith at that moment. There wasn't this glorious, aha, wow, that's so exciting. Yes, we were wrong. You were right. But eventually that witness penetrates by the power of the Holy Spirit, and Saul becomes the Apostle Paul. He is born again. His nature is entirely changed, and he becomes, of course, as we all know, the greatest apostle in the history of the church, taking the gospel uh, all the way to Rome. And so will there be people like that in the Taliban who may kill people but in time come to faith? Obviously, we can't say we don't know, but you and I have met former terrorists, radical Islamist terrorists, Mm-hmm. who had the witness of Jesus Christ, didn't believe it at the time, and eventually were transformed. And you and I are living and speaking today because they were transformed and that yeah. we met them and we lived to tell the story. So I have hope for Afghanistan, but I think it's going to be a very bloody, very messy, very ugly mm. period ahead. I don't know, honestly, Joel, if we're prepared in our sensibilities again for another round of videos of Taliban uh, murderous uh, reprisals on Christians um, or any others. You know, we've been horrified over the last 20 years, and it seems like we're, uh, again, still, we're never prepared for that level of, of just extreme violence. 
you mentioned it. I mean, I've had the opportunity, the privilege of sitting across a table with a translator from a former imam in uh, the Kandahar region who came to a training center that I was uh, participating in some training with in Pakistan. And he was empty as an imam and yet prayed, uh, this is in about 2006, prayed that God would show himself real to him. And Jesus appeared to him in a vision. I mean, you're looking into the eyes of someone, and I don't understand a word of Pashtun, but I mean, I can tell you there was sincerity, there was depth, there was a true conversion in his heart. And then he took the journey over the mountains into Pakistan to come for training because he knew there were Christians there. Back in those days, no one thought there were many Christians at all in Afghanistan. I mean, in fact, after the Taliban had scoured the country, it was almost unlikely to find a Christian anywhere. And and yet that's my prayer, Joel. And I, and I want to ask you some questions about that. This church has, has become a fledgling church, and it is now literally, in some cases, just 20 years old. And Tertullian wrote that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, but no one seeks martyrdom in, in Christianity because it's a very different view of martyrdom, but it is a witness. Right, right. Paul tells us, yeah, Paul, who ultimately was a martyr. Um, yeah, but Paul tells us to be living sacrifices. That's right. In Romans chapter twelve, meaning we are supposed to be willing to die for the Lord Jesus. But you know, unlike a suicide bomber or a homicide bomber or one of these types of, we're not seeking martyrdom, but we need to be willing to lay down our life for our friends, right? There's no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends as you seek to be a witness for them for Jesus, because this is the model Jesus gave us. Our, of course, death um, at the hands of persecutors isn't redemptive in the sense that Jesus's was. Right. But as, as Tertullian said, and as you referenced, watching a true follower of Jesus Christ lay down his life hmm. and not abandon his love for Christ and his testimony or her testimony has a powerful impact. God uses that yes. often to energize more timid followers of Jesus who say, if that brother or sister is willing to lay down his life for Jesus, I need to do more. I need to be Amen. more faithful. Rather than causing everyone to be more scared, it often has the opposite reaction, which is certainly counterintuitive. It's, um, again, when we're weak, we are strong. When Jesus modeled going to the slaughter, if you will, uh, like a sheep, but without resisting in that way, mm-hmm. violently or calling followers to resist. That's a beautiful thing. And it is also something that is deeply traumatic at the same time. I don't know how else to describe it, um, but it is it is profoundly moving. Um, Joel, I want to take a quick break right here for our listeners. And uh, we want to come back and stay on this uh, idea of what's happened after 20 years of 9-11. We went into Afghanistan, now the situation the way it is, but we're going to take a quick break here for our listeners. Hi, this is Carl Muller, Executive Director of the Joshua Fund. I don't know about you, but I love to have someone to talk to after I've learned something new. If you're the same, share this podcast with a friend or family member and discuss together the many ways God is moving in the epicenter. From all of us at Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg, thank you. Hey, Joel, 
I don't think any of us can um, forget where we were when 9-11 took place. I know I remember. Um, if you were old enough to have memories, you remember where you were. Even my oldest daughter was uh, quite a little girl, but she remembers writing a, a letter to uh, the victims and the victims' families. You know, we were in California. We were 3,000 miles away from the attacks, but we were all impacted deeply. I think this past event with the withdrawal and everything, you know, Americans were tired. Let's be honest. Americans yeah. were tired of this war. 20 years, our longest war. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do we respond to the fact that we should have perhaps been out of there, but, you know, and how we did it? I, mean, I don't think there's any uh, anything but bipartisan uh, condemnation of the way we left. But there's a lot of folks, we're not partisan here. But there's a lot of folks who feel like 20 years, it was too long to be there. And maybe are we not part of that problem? Mm. Okay, so let me break that into a couple pieces. First, um, I do remember where I was on 9-11 because I was um, living in our uh, home that we were renting uh, in Washington, D.C. We were living 15 minutes away from Washington Dulles Airport uh, where Flight 77 was being hijacked. Mm turned around, flown over our house and into the Pentagon. I remember what I was doing because I was finishing my first novel, which was about a radical Islamist terrorist cell hijacking a plane and flying it into American city. Amazing. And that leading to a series of wars in the Middle East that Mm. even led to the removal of Saddam Hussein from power in Iraq. This was fiction. This is my first novel. Wow. I was just I was just trying my hand at could I do something uh, write a novel that I you know a political thriller that I I'd, I'd want to do since I was 8 years old and I would this was my idea fictionally uh, I wasn't trying to predict it <laughs> if I was I, I then I was way off I wasn't prophetic if I was prophetic I the book would have come out the year before you know where this was just sort of war gaming out Threats, I thought, these are realistic because I see the threats in the Middle East from this certain type of this type of group of people known as jihadists, people who mm. believe that they need to wage holy war. It's really very unholy. It's evil war, but they yeah. call it holy war, jihad, against infidels, Christians, Jews, uh, even other Muslims that don't share their brand and their, uh, you know, a faith of their uh, theology or eschatology. And so... I believe that even though Israel and other countries in the Middle East were facing that, that that was coming to the United States if our leadership didn't understand it. One of the themes mm-hmm. of my books over the years has been to misunderstand the nature and threat of evil is to risk being blindsided by it. Yeah. And I look at December 7th, 1941. When the Imperial Japanese hit us at Pearl Harbor, Americans were blindsided by an evil we didn't see. We didn't understand what the Imperial Japanese really wanted. We didn't think they could get it if they tried. Part of that was ignorance. Part of it was racism. We thought, well, the Japanese, you know, we just had this view of the Japanese at that time. that, like, even if they did hate us, that they don't have the technological capability or the will or the courage or the fortitude or whatever to come get us. So we didn't see it coming. Um, And you look later at the intelligence, you saw, oh, it was knowable, but we just didn't believe it. 
certainly uh, September 11th was the same thing. We just didn't understand this evil that was coming. But this was the book I was writing. So anyway, that was my uh, my recollections of that day. And then in the new book, Enemies and Allies, uh, many people, not everybody that I interviewed, I go into the Oval Office, I go into the palaces of, of Arab countries and, and, of course, the leadership of Israel. And, and, and you're going to – we'll talk about another podcast. But what's unique about Enemies and Allies is, is that it's not just my observations. I'm taking you in the room, the rooms where it happened. You're talking to the people that – have shaped and are shaping events in the Middle East, U.S., Israeli, Arab, at the highest level, kings, crown princes, presidents, and prime ministers. And you hear them in their own voices. Love them, hate them, agree with them, don't disagree with them. But you're going to hear us ask them tough questions. And some of them we would say, do you remember where you were on 9-11? What's your story? Yeah, what's your recollection? the top leaders in, in, in Saudi Arabia where bin Laden came from, where 15 of the 19 hijackers, they, they were Saudis. It didn't mean the Saudi government was responsible, but it's interesting. So we sat with the crown prince wow. of Saudi Arabia, and we asked, what do you remember? He was 16 years old. I won't tell that story right now, but, but wow. the point is we do have these memories. But you're right. Americans are, and I would say super understandably, exhausted by this. Mm. 20 years. We defeated both Nazi Germany – Stopped the Holocaust and defeated Imperial Japan in four years. Yeah. <laughs> it's taken us 20 to defeat what we all think is, well, aren't these cave dwellers with antiquated equipment? What is happening here? How is the greatest superpower in the world? The Russians, you know, the Soviet Union collapsed because they went into Afghanistan and yeah. they they ground down and they lost. Now, the U.S. was helping the Afghanis fight against the Soviet Union, but the Soviet Union collapsed because they ran out of gas, both literally right. and figuratively, in right. Afghanistan. And I think it raises a lot of questions about the United States. How did we not win this war or hadn't we – how did we then lose it? Sure. Sure. But I think the, the big picture is maybe for the purpose of this podcast is less about the policies. Me personally, I don't think we should have withdrawn all our soldiers, U.S. forces out. I don't think we needed a lot. I mean, think about it. Just a month ago from when you and I are talking, a month ago, we had 2,500 U.S. forces there, mostly special mm-hmm. forces, air operators providing combat air support to mm-hmm. the Afghan army. Yeah. And with us, because we were there, there was about 7,100 NATO forces, again, yeah. assisting. We weren't doing most of the fighting, and none of our people had been killed in about a year. Wow. But just that amount, roughly 10,000, with the 300,000 Afghani soldiers who were still learning and still, you know, that seemed to work. Pulling out everybody, to be bipartisan about it, right. it was Trump's decision to right. remove everybody. But it was Biden's decision to do it in the way he did it. Sure. And I think there's blame on both sides. Sure. But I think there's also the question of, I know you're trying to press me on, (laughs) should we have been there that long in the first place? (laughs) And so my quick answer to that is, I think yes, because we still have U.S. forces in South Korea, and that war's been over since the 50s. Yeah. We still have U.S. forces in Japan, mm. and that war ended in 1945. We still have U.S. forces in Germany. Why? Because they're fighting? No. They advise, they assist, but they're a deterrent against 
going back into the wrong place. They are a stabilizing force. And my personal view, it's not the view of the Joshua Fund because we don't take positions like no. this. Because I wrote Enemies and Allies, and this is a moment we're talking about and trying to understand. We're trying to take people inside the epicenter. And you say, okay, you know, it, it, like if you're a person that hated Trump, you're like, well, it's his fault. Well, to a degree, it was. But, of course, the buck stops at the current president and what right. he's doing. But I'm not mainly talking about that. I'm mainly saying if you liberate a country from radical Islam and you're in the process of helping them learn, you don't need 100,000 or 200,000 U.S. forces there. But that's not what we had. Hmm. And it was working. But there was an artificial sense of let's just get out and be done with it. And I yeah. think that feeling of exhaustion, of wash our hands, we're done. Yeah went overboard both in President Trump and his team and yeah. with President Biden. And it set into motion a feeling of abandonment yeah. among our ally. Yeah. If they're our allies, shouldn't we stand with them? Well, and uh, it's painful to watch. I certainly feel like many of our listeners, like like myself at times, have felt exhausted by this, uh, by our constant presence. You know, I mean, I remember President Trump talking about endless wars. If we don't have that understanding i think we're going to be way too likely to just keep going on and acting like an occupying force and i and i realize what you're saying we only had 2500 military um troops on the ground there and you know what's fascinating to me is i guess what it proves is that that presence was a kind of a force multiplier i mean it it enabled the uh the local uh, army that we had uh, empowered to stay in place. I mean, and, and that sort of moral encouragement when we pulled out was was devastating loss. And you could just see the heart go out of the nation. As, they were as terrified we, when we left. Exactly. When the world superpower says, you're on your own. I mean, I mean, again, I understand the thinking of endless wars and it, it, people don't, don't want to do that. But let's keep a couple other facts in mind. We, as Americans, tragically lost about 2,500, just a little bit under 2,500 Americans, both uh, special operators, Marines, uh, you know, soldiers, airmen, and CIA operatives in, in the theater of Afghanistan. About 2,500. Terrible. Mm. Terrible. The Afghan army lost 60,000. Yeah. They have been fighting. They're taking the brunt. It's their country. Mm. So I, I agree with the view that, look, it's their country. Let them fight. They were. They needed our assistance. They're not a Western industrialized country that has it. So that's one thing. The second thing is I want to use a biblical uh, analogy here, which I'm not entirely sure fits. I, I'll say okay. it, being honest. <laughs> Jesus, uh, when he cast out demons from someone in the New Testament, he talks about how if the demons are cast out, but the Holy Spirit doesn't reside in that house and the person doesn't grow yes. and is strong in the Lord, that more demons are going to come and go, oh, that house is still empty. Uh, let's go fill it back up. It'll be even worse. Mm. And to me, that's Afghanistan. Oh, that's a picture of that. Yes. And the, mm. the U.S. has assisted, um, you know, the Reagan doctrine just by historical context was when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan in December of 1979, we were worried that Iran was already, had already taken over our embassy. Uh, the Iranian uh, revolutionaries had taken over our embassy in, in Tehran. Uh, mm -hmm. The Ayatollah was in charge. The Shah was out. Our ally was gone. Our enemy was in. And now one of our enemies, the Soviet Union, our main enemy was taking over a country heading towards the Persian Gulf. It all seemed bad. 
but President Reagan decided we the American people do not have the stomach, honestly, to go send U.S. forces into Afghanistan. And are we going to get into a direct fight with the Soviets? <clears throat> Could that go nuclear? I mean, yeah. so he came up with another strategy: is what if we arm, assist, enable, equip the rebels, the rebels on the ground in Afghanistan to fight the Soviets and try to ground them down? It worked. We didn't mm-hmm. send U.S. forces in, but we we funded and assisted and trained and armed and equipped, and it worked. <laughs> And I think even though we had sent a lot of forces in to Afghanistan at one point, I think we had found a reasonable, I'm not saying perfect, no, there's plenty right. of holes, but a reasonable way, because otherwise you would say, how come Afghanistan's democratically elected government didn't fall earlier? Hmm. And now what do you have? Every single Christian in the country is in danger of being arrested, imprisoned, tortured, and possibly executed. Every foreigner, every humanitarian aid worker, every diplomat, every business person, everybody who's trying to help the country has been abandoned and feels abandoned. And even the president, you know, of of Afghanistan fled. Like you could say, well, that's an indicator of how bad it was. Well, when your best friend and the biggest guy on the block takes off and you're a scrawny person trying to hold your own against bullies, that, then that's a problem. And that's one other thing, and I'll say it in a paragraph. This is a reminder, where are all these rich jihadists coming from? Yeah, We have been fighting them with our allies. NATO kicked in. We, NATO hasn't fought with us really much. I mean, and a few other theaters, but they came right to our aid on 9-11. They said, we're in. When one country's hit, we're all hit. We're in. And they've been fighting alongside us. But it's a reminder, the radical Islamist jihadists, Mm. they have a pool of people to draw from. And Mm. this is important to say, um, but that's why the wars go on, because there's almost an inexhaustible supply Mm. of fighters, 18, 20, 25, 30, young people, young men willing to go and fill in the place of the last guy that fell. And their view is... The United States is, and the West are paper tigers, yeah. and we just have to grind them down. Yeah, and- well, I, I couldn't agree more. I actually had, um, in my reading this morning, had a uh, quote um, that John Stone Street brought out about about Islam is not about this president or the next president or even four presidents from now. They are generational. They are thousand-year vision for the progress of what they're engaged with. And I don't know if we really understand that. Well, and that's, this what, this has been my mission from the first book, right. The Last Jihad, as just as fiction, to enemies and allies uh, at current. If you misunderstand, if you don't understand the nature of evil, uh, you're going to get hit. You're going to get yeah. blindsided. And and I would uh, note this. This is, I think, a fact, a set of facts that that our listeners need to know. Our viewers, look, there are 1.8 billion Muslims in the world. Okay. Mm. And some people get frustrated. They say, oh, people keep saying that Islam is a religion of peace, but don't you see what's happening in Afghanistan or elsewhere? And, and I say, look, the vast, vast majority of Muslims are not jihadists. They're not violent. And we have seen studies and polling, dozens of polls in dozens of Muslim-majority countries. I've studied most of them. I can't say I've read every single poll, but I've studied a lot of them, and I've written about this in past books, nonfiction books. 
including a book called Inside the Revolution. Mm. The short version is this. The polling shows that about 90% of Muslims worldwide do not agree with using violence to achieve political or religious objectives. Mm. They don't agree with it. So you honestly can say they're not being recruited into these violent terrorist organizations like the Taliban and others. And therefore, you can say that the vast majority of Muslims are peaceful and you don't need to worry about them. That's true. But there are several other things that are true, Carl. The studies show consistently, although it fluctuates for a number of reasons, we don't have to get into that level of nuance right now, but between 7 and 10% of the Muslim world does support. You ask them questions from various angles and you phrase it in different ways to kind of keep seeing if you're really getting. But 7 to 10% of Muslims do agree mm. with using violence to achieve political and or religious objectives. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean that all of them are going to go do it. It means they're supportive. They might give money. They might give assistance. And they or their children might think, I'm in. If I'm needed, I might join. Now, okay, you say, well, that's only maybe 10% at the most. Okay, that's good. Except that when you think of 1.8 billion people, 10% is 180 million. Wow. Now, that's more than half of the population of the United States. Yeah. If all of these folks created their own country, let's call it the Islamic Republic of Radicalstan, <laughs> right? This would be the ninth largest country by population on the planet Earth. Wow. This would be larger than Russia. Hmm. So if you say Islam overall is mostly peaceful, that's true. But that's true and important to say. But it's also slightly irrelevant because if you're talking about a pool of 180 million people who yeah. believe in violence and out of that you're recruiting 5,000, 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 or more, then you've got a problem. Yeah. And as I talk about in yeah. Enemies and Allies, when you have a whole country like the Islamic Republic of Iran that's led by not just radical Islamists, but apocalyptic yeah. Islamists saying, let's use violence to achieve the end of days as we know it yes. and bring about, you know, a global caliphate where everyone worships Islam and they pursue nuclear weapons. Now, Afghanistan pales by comparison. It's chilling. Yeah, that's chilling. You know, we could go many, many directions on the current state of things and the uncertainties that are there. There's military uncertainties. There's there's various other things. What are you hearing from some of your friends in some of these countries? You know, the other allies, if you will, who have talked to us about progressing towards peace. What are some of those thoughts coming from some of your friends in the Middle East? Well, there is a, a sea change of thinking going on in the Muslim world, particularly in the Arab Muslim world. Hmm. And again, it's challenging just in a single podcast to get every nuance, but there are Arabs. Most Arabs are Muslim, so some are Christians and some are atheists and whatever. People in Afghanistan are not Arab, mostly. There are, there are Arabs that live there, but they are different ethnic origins. And the Iranians are not Arabs. They're Persians, but they are Muslims, but they're not Sunnis. They're Shias. Okay, so there's a lot of complexity, language, ethnicity, religion, and theology within the religion, mm. right? In a simple way, you think, oh, America, is it a Christian nation? Uh, there's a lot of Christians here. 
and then we have Catholic, we have Protestant, within Protestant we have all these other. So, you know, you get a lot of uh, Sure, I can see that. So, but there's a sea change going on in Muslim thinking towards Christians, towards Jews, and even towards Israel. And in Enemies and Allies, I document what I th- I'm calling tectonic changes. I mean, you, you've seen four Arab countries make peace and normalize uh, relations with Israel, meaning let's have embassies, let's have trade, let's have tourism, let's invest in each other. Let's not just say we're not going to go to war with each other. Let's actually have normal, friendly relations. We're not going to agree with everything you think and do, and you're not going to agree with everything with us, but let's try to have our cultures become friends, not just our governments. This is huge. We had seen previously two Arab-Israeli peace treaties in all of the last hundred years, and now we've seen four in just at the end of 2020. And and yet because of COVID and all those implications, all those shutdowns, most Americans don't really know the story of what became known as the Abraham Accords. But this is the first book. It's the only book at the moment that talks about any of this. But one other thing, and I would say is this, there is a view among many Muslims after 20 years of fighting, you know, we're tired, but but so are they. Mm. And most Muslims are like, we don't want to be, identified with these radicals who behead people, who slaughter people, who burn people alive in cages. Mm-hmm. That's not us. Yeah. And some Muslims are watching the, the jihadists and they're saying, if that's really Islam, if it is, then you and I, let's not choose on this podcast to, to parse that. But Muslims looking at other Muslims and the Muslims are saying, if the jihad holy war concept, if that's really what we're supposed to believe, then I'm out. Yeah. Many are becoming atheists, more are becoming agnostics, but many are searching what is true, and they are finding Jesus as the Savior. They already love Jesus because he's revered in the Quran, but they didn't know him as a prophet. They don't know him as the Son of God, as the Savior. They don't even believe that he died on the cross, much less rose again. Yeah. But as they're saying, we love Jesus, Is what does the New Testament say about Jesus? What is true about Jesus? Because we're starting to think that maybe what we've been taught on a lot of fronts is not true. This is what I'm seeing. You know, Carl, I have crisscrossed the Middle East for the last, well, 40 years, but but particularly in the last 20, from Morocco in the West to Afghanistan in the East, and spent days, weeks, hours, but just listening to people. And I'm seeing huge changes. The Muslims mm-hmm. are getting tired. And therefore, they're saying, you know what, maybe our hatred of Christians and Jews is wrong. Maybe they're our friends. Maybe Israel's not our cup of tea yeah. or a cup of coffee more in the uh, the Middle East. But maybe they're our allies against these jihadists. They're getting hit yeah. by the same people. So I'm watching some huge changes. And I'm noticing that in that context, and, and maybe this is my key point here is, when Muslims are being horrified by the actions of the radical Muslims and they're starting to go, what is really true? Mm-hmm. Does God want that from us? And they know he doesn't. And so they're searching. And it's yeah. almost like you get in a car and you've never seen a car radio before and you turn it on and you just hit scan. Yeah. I'm not sure what I'm looking for, but I'm scanning the dial and I'm looking. Mm-hmm. Is there a sound that resonates? Is there something that hits me and goes, that's true? And that's what they're doing on satellite television, yeah. on the internet, on radio, and among when they meet a believer. And we are seeing more Muslims 
come to faith in Jesus Christ in the last 50 or 60 years, but I would say in particular in the last 20 than ever in human history. And we've been, you know, it's a thing we've been talking about. You, you talked to one of the great authors about this, uh, yeah. um, David. And, and I, I, but I think this is a theme that more of our listeners need, we need to build on this because people are like, we're exhausted. Okay, but so are they. Yes. And out of that exhaustion is coming searching. And out of the searching, that's when we need to be there and strengthen our brothers and sisters to say, mm-hmm. those who are in the region, how can you be a witness to people who are your neighbors and your, previously your enemies? And that's what the Joshua Fund does. Amen. We educate the church about what's happening, but we strengthen as God enables us financially, prayerfully, and relationships, encouragement, training with the believers so they can be the lighthouse yes. in the darkness as people feel like they're on a ship of state about to hit the the rocks and they're scared. Yes. That is exactly the pivot I wanted to make at this point because, you know, when we talk about so many of these things, where's the hope? Where Where's hope in the Middle East right now? And I think you hit the nail on the head that the Spirit of God is moving in the hearts and minds of uh, many Muslims around the world who are questioning the depth of this violence, and and they're not drawn towards that. They're actually questioning many, many more things like that. You know, I'm old enough to remember when the church in the West had no idea what was going on inside of China after the communists had kicked all the missionaries and others out and were left with a relatively small number of believers struggling for their safety and existence, many of whom went to prison and many of whom died there. But because of what God was doing, that church became one of the largest evangelical churches in the world. Um, That's a great analogy to this, Carl, because when you think of the Chinese communist takeover of the country, the Cultural Revolution, all the trauma, I mean, mm-hmm. murders of Christians and, and missionaries being driven out of the country. And I've heard the estimates, you know, that the church whittled down to about 250,000. Now, in, in some countries, you know, in Israel, that would be a lot. We'd love that. <laughs> we only have 30,000 right. of Jesus in Israel. But in China, that's not that many, 250,000. But now, where are we? The estimates range from 100 or 80 to 100 million followers of Jesus in China. Mm-hmm. Now, that's why this is so important, so important. It's critical for us as followers of Jesus Christ to realize that what looks bad to us as Americans in terms of foreign policy, in terms of public policy, God sovereignly can use and often does use to advance his kingdom. So the communist takeover of China has been bad for the world, bad for America, and bad for the Chinese people. But what man planned for evil, Hmm. God used for good and took the church, essentially let the church be burnt down, Mm -hmm. but then regrew it from 250,000 or so true followers of Jesus to about 100 million today. And so you'd ask yourself, I don't want what happened to China to happen to China, but if God's going to allow, it's hard to say the right way to frame right. it. If God's going to allow that so that he can build his church, not because people are being offered, oh, you'll get a Learjet if you become a follower of Jesus. <laughs> you'll get a Rolex watch. You'll be rich and famous and prosperous. No, the way it works in China is if your neighbor sees that you have hope in the midst of the horror, they say, hey, my friend, why do you have hope? And mm-hmm. and they say, well, I can't tell you. What do you mean you can't tell me? 
I don't want to get you in trouble. What? I, no, no. Tell me. I. You have. You have something in your eyes. Something in your spirit. Something in your way. You are operating with hope, and and the rest of us are miserable. What is this about you? He says, "Listen, I can't tell you." No, you have to tell me. You're my friend. You're my neighbor. Listen, if I tell you, you could get in trouble. You could get in prison. You could lose your job. Your kids could get banned from going to college. You, I, no, I can't tell you. No, you must tell me. Okay, but <laughs> I will tell you, but yes. at your own risk. No, 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 I need this. And they tell them, and they say, but if you believe this, if you believe that Jesus is the Savior, if you believe everything I teach you, your life could get much, much worse. Yes, but I would have hope. I would go to heaven someday. I would have what you have, which is hope in the midst of horror. Hmm. That's how the church is growing in China. That's hmm. how it's growing in Iran. That's how it's growing in Afghanistan. Yes. And uh, let's pray that continues. God works in higher ways, and, and you know He has a pain threshold that He's okay with hmm. that I'm not. Yeah. But He's using it, and some of the worst most dangerous countries on the, on the planet that we would say from a foreign policy perspective are horror shows. The church is growing faster than yeah. the countries where things are safe and peaceful. Yeah. And that's the thing. We don't understand the spiritual eternal dynamics of so many of these things. And when we look at the suffering, of course, our hearts are breaking, but we also realize that the God who cares more about these people than we do more love for anyone in this story has chosen to do some of these things in a way that we don't understand. But, you know, that's the essence of faith for us to walk in that direction. Amen. I mean, I, th- I don't think any of us would pray for more persecution anywhere. No. But we do pray that God's will is done and that his kingdom is built and that, you know, that's that's right. wonderful. Well, Joel, I, I would love to When persecution and horror comes, we don't say, well... That's another, you know, God has just blown it. He won't listen to us. He won't answer our prayers. It's our instinct. Yeah. Because our instinct is to pray for good things for our friends, for our neighbors, for ourselves. It's not that it's wrong. Yeah. But ultimately, but but Jesus had the same prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's like, I don't want to die. Right. I I don't want to suffer. And so, Father, if there's any way, any way that you Mm. could let this cup of suffering pass from me, Please, but not my will. I want your will, but please, couldn't it be your will not to suffer? And I think that's fascinating that that was not a sinful prayer. Right. Because otherwise Jesus would be sinful, and he's not. He was saying, I don't want to suffer, and I don't want to go down this road. Is there another way? That cry, that prayer is not wrong. But the Father said, that's not my will for you. And, And Jesus even knew it wasn't his will for him, but he's still like... Maybe I missed something. I mean, I know I, 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 I have omniscience, but I get that up. Wow. Anyway. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful it's dynamic to see. With one yeah. last thought, and that is I went uh, to Afghanistan in March of 2009. Mm. And it was in some ways a scouting mission. Uh, Joshua Fund was very early. It was only three years in motion. We hadn't defined exactly what is our parameter, what's our footprint. When we say we love, you know, God loves Israel and neighbors, that's everybody. But is there a limit to what we can financially and, and structurally, you know, what we can yeah. assist? And, and Afghanistan was such a central question. And I got an invitation. And so I went with some colleagues and it was it was sobering. And I realized, wow, the church needs help here. But I did agree when I came back. We talked about it with the staff, with the board. I think that's beyond our scope. There's so much need here. God is moving. I was moved by the believers I met on the ground. 
But I thought, you know, Israel and her immediate neighbors is probably, you know, as our much focus. we can do because there's so much need right there. Right. Um, we can't just meet every need, but there are other Christians that are. But my, it's always given me a, a, a soft spot in my heart because I saw so much pain and so much danger. I met with Pashtun leaders and mm. and it was fascinating. Muslims. I tried to give a Bible in the local language to an Afghan tribal leader. He wouldn't even touch it. He said, if I touch it, I'm going to hell. Yeah. That showed how what, what the challenge is for Christianity in Afghanistan. But I hear good things. I hear the church. I mean, I believe the church has been growing over the last 20 years and we need to stand with her in prayer. And right. I hope that one takeaway from this podcast will be people will be faithfully praying. Not don't you might be angry at one political party or leader or whatever about what's happening in U.S. policy. I have a degree of that myself. Mm. But let's keep appealing to the God of the universe. Amen. Strengthen our brothers and sisters to be a witness in a nation that's very scared right now. Amen. Amen. Well, Joel. I want to just say we're going to talk about these things many more times, I'm sure, because that's just the nature of our world and that's the nature of our work. But I want to thank you for uh, joining us and giving us some incredible insights in this uh, very, very murky situation right now. And to all of you um, listeners and uh, watchers of our podcast, uh, I want to thank you for you know just hanging in there with us on these very, very challenging topics. Um, And if you'd like to learn more about the Joshua Fund, about what we do, about uh, how God has uh, used Joel and Lynn Rosenberg to help catalyze some of these conversations and bring about change in this way, visit our website, joshuafund.com. We have immense amounts of research and and materials there for you to to encourage you and to, to bless you and to help you learn what God is doing in the Middle East to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus, and frankly, how you can participate in God's healing work in this region. As we look at circumstances right now, we have more than ever reason to cling to the promises of God eternally. So um, we want to thank you for uh, listening today, and I want to thank again my guest, uh, my host, our founder, Joel Rosenberg. And if you'd like to learn more about some of the things we've talked about, you can always check our show notes for anything you've heard here that you'd like to get more information on. And um, on behalf of all of us here at the Joshua Fund, For Joel Rosenberg and and for all of our team, I'm Carl Muller. Thanks for listening to Inside the Epicenter. In a world where relationships are easily broken and often discarded, the Rebuilding Us Marriage Podcast is your lighthouse guiding the way to hope, restoration, and transformation in Christ. I'm your host and marriage coach, Dana Shea. Join me as we discuss the necessary tools for rebuilding marriages from adversity, betrayal, and disconnection. It's time to reignite love as we rebuild marriages from the ground up. Listen to the Rebuilding Us Marriage podcast on lifeaudio.com or wherever you get your podcasts.